Book eleven, chapters one to nine out of twenty of Spirit of the Laws. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Benjamin Gittens. The Spirit of the Laws by Charles de Secadent, Baron de Montesquieu. Translated by Thomas Nugent. Book eleven of the laws which establish political liberty with regard to the constitution. Chapter one A general idea. I make a distinction between the laws that establish political liberty as it relates to the constitution and those by which it is established as it relates to the citizen. The former shall be the subject of this book, the latter I shall examine in the next. Chapter 2. Different Significations of the Word Liberty There is no word that admits of more various significations, and has made more varied impressions on the human mind, than that of liberty. Some have taken it as a means of deposing a person on whom they have conferred a tyrannical authority, others for the power of choosing a superior whom they are obliged to obey, others for the right of bearing arms, and of being thereby enabled to use violence, others, in fine, for the privilege of being governed by a native of their own country, or by their own laws. A certain nation, for a long time, thought liberty consisted in the privilege of wearing a long beard. Subnote, the Russians could not bear that Caesar Peter should make them cut it off. Some have annexed this name to one form of government exclusive of others. Those who had a republican taste applied it to this species of polity. Those who liked a monarchical state gave it to monarchy. Thus, they have all applied the name of liberty to the government most suitable to their own customs and inclinations. And as in republics, the people have not so constant and so present a view of the causes of their misery, and, as the magistrates seem to act only in conformity to the laws, hence liberty is generally said to reside in republics, and to be banished from monarchies. In fine, as in democracies the people seem to act almost as they please, this sort of government has been deemed the most free, and the power of the people has been confounded with their liberty. Chapter 3. In what liberty consists... It is true that in democracies the people seem to act as they please, but political liberty does not consist in an unlimited freedom. In governments, that is, in societies directed by laws, liberty can consist only in the power of doing what we ought to will, and in not being constrained to do what we ought not to will. We must have continually present to our minds the difference between independence and liberty. Liberty is a right of doing whatever the laws permit, and if a citizen could do what they forbid, he would be no longer possessed of liberty, because all his fellow citizens would have the same power. Chapter 4. The Same Subject Continued. Democratic and aristocratic states are not in their own nature free. Political liberty is to be found only in moderate governments, and even in these it is not always found. It is there only when there is no abuse of power. 
but constant experience shows us that every man invested with power is apt to abuse it and to carry his authority as far as it will go is it not strange though true to say that virtue itself has need of limits to prevent this abuse it is necessary from the very nature of things that power should be a check to power a government may be so constituted as no man shall be compelled to do things to which the law does not oblige him nor forced to abstain from things which the law permits chapter five of the end or view of different governments though all governments have the same general end which is that of preservation yet each has another particular object increase of dominion was the object of rome war that of sparta religion that of the jewish laws commerce that of Messales, public tranquillity that of the laws of china navigation that of the laws of Rhodes, natural liberty that of the policy of the savages in general the pleasures of the prince that of despotic states that of monarchies the princes and the kingdom's glory the independence of individuals is the end aimed at by the laws of poland thence results the oppression of the whole footnote inconvenience of the liberum veto one nation there is also in the world that has for the direct end of its constitution political liberty we shall presently examine the principles on which this liberty is founded if they are sound liberty will appear in its highest perfection to discover political liberty in a constitution no great labor is a requisite if we are capable of seeing it where it exists it is soon found and we need not go far in search of it chapter six of the constitution of england in every government there are three sorts of power the legislative the executive in respect to things dependent on the law of nations and the executive in regards to matters that depend on the civil law by virtue of the first the prince or magistrate enacts temporary or perpetual laws and amends or abrogates those that had already been enacted by the second he makes peace or war sends or receives embassies establishes the public security and provides against invasions by the third he punishes criminals or determines the disputes that arise between individuals the latter we shall call the judiciary power and the other simply the executive power of the state the political liberty of the subject is a tranquillity of mind arising from the opinion each person has of his safety in order to have this liberty it is a requisite the government be so constituted as one man need not be afraid of another when the legislative and executive powers are united in the same person or in the same body of magistrates there can be no liberty because apprehensions may arise lest the same monarch or senate should enact tyrannical laws to execute them in a tyrannical manner again there is no liberty if the judiciary power be not separated from the legislative and executive were it joined with the legislative the life and liberty of the subject would be exposed to arbitrary control 
for the judge would be then the legislator. Were it joined to the executive power, the judge might behave with violence and oppression. There would be an end of everything, were the same man or the same body, whether of the nobles or of the people, to exercise those three powers, that of enacting laws, that of executing the public resolutions, and of trying the causes of individuals. Most kingdoms in Europe enjoy a moderate government because the prince, who is invested with the two first powers, leaves the third to his subjects. In Turkey, where these three powers are united in the sultan's person, the subjects groan under the most dreadful oppression. In the republics of Italy, where these three powers are united, there is less liberty than in our monarchies. Hence, their government is obliged to have recourse to as violent methods for its support as even that of the Turks. Witness the state inquisitors, and the lion's mouth into which every informer may at all hours throw his written accusations. In what a situation must the poor subject be in those republics? The same body of magistrates are possessed, as executors of the laws, of the whole power they have given themselves in quality of legislators. They may plunder the state by their general determinations, and as they have likewise the judiciary power in their hands, every private citizen may be ruined by their particular decisions. The whole power is here united in one body, and though there is no external pomp that indicates a despotic sway, yet the people feel the effects of it every moment. Hence, it is that many of the princes of Europe, whose aim has been levelled at arbitrary power, have constantly set out with uniting in their own persons all the branches of magistracy and all the great offices of state. I allow indeed that the mere hereditary aristocracy of the Italian republics does not exactly answer to the despotic power of the eastern princes. The number of magistrates sometimes moderate the power of the magistracy. The whole body of the nobles do not always concur in the same design, and different tribunals are erected that temper each other. Thus, at Venice, the legislative power is in the council, the executive in the Prigadi, and the judiciary in the Quarantia. But the mischief is that these different tribunals are composed of magistrates all belonging to the same body, which constitutes almost one and the same power. The judiciary power ought not to be given to a standing senate. It should be exercised by persons taken from the body of the people at certain times of the year and consistently with a form and manner prescribed by law in order to erect a tribunal that should last only so long as necessity requires. By this method the judicial power, so terrible to mankind, not being annexed to any particular state or profession, becomes, as it were, invisible. People have not then the judges continually present to their view. They fear the office, but not the magistrate. In accusations of a deep and criminal nature, it is proper that the person accused should have the privilege of choosing, in some measure, his judges in concurrence with the law. 
or at least he should have a right to accept against so great a number that the remaining part may be deemed his own choice. The other two powers may be given rather to magistrates or permanent bodies, because they are not exercised on any private subject, one being no more than the general will of the state, and the other the execution of that general will. But though the tribunals ought not to be fixed, the judgments ought, and to such a degree as to be ever conformable to the letter of the law. Were they to be the private opinion of the judge, people would then live in society without exactly knowing the nature of their obligations. The judges ought likewise to be of the same rank as the accused, or, in other words, his peers, to the end that he may not imagine he has fallen into the hands of persons inclined to treat him with rigour. If the legislature leaves the executive power in possession of a right to imprison those subjects who can give security for their good behaviour, there is an end of liberty, unless they are taken up in order to answer without delay to a capital crime, in which case they are really free, being subject only to the power of the law. But should the legislature think itself in danger by some secret conspiracy against the state, or by a correspondence with a foreign enemy, it might authorize the executive power for a short and limited time to imprison suspected persons, who in that case would lose their liberty only for a while to preserve it forever. And this is the only reasonable method that can be substituted to the tyrannical magistracy of the Ifori and to the state inquisitors of Venice, who are also despotic. As in a country of liberty, every man who is supposed a free agent ought to be his own governor. The legislative power should reside in the whole body of the people. But since this is impossible in large states, and in small ones is subject to many inconveniences, it is fit that the people should transact by their representatives what they cannot transact by themselves. The inhabitants of a particular town are much better acquainted with its wants and interests than with those of other places, and are better judges of the capacity of their neighbours than of that of the rest of their countrymen. The members, therefore, of the legislature should not be chosen from the general body of the nation, but it is proper that in every considerable place a representative should be elected by the inhabitants. The great advantage of representatives is their capacity of discussing public affairs. For this, the people collectively are extremely unfit, which is one of the chief inconveniences of a democracy. It is not at all necessary that the representatives who have received a general instruction from their constituents should wait to be directed on each particular affair, as is practiced in the diets of Germany. True, it is that by this way of proceeding the speeches of the deputies might with greater propriety be called the voice of the nation. But, on the other hand, this would occasion infinite delays, would give each deputy a power of controlling the assembly, and, on the most urgent and pressing occasions, the wheels of government might be stopped by the caprice of a single person. When the deputies, as Mr. Sidney well observes, represent a body of people, as in Holland, they ought to be accountable to their constituents, 
but it is a different thing in England, where they are deputed by boroughs. All the inhabitants of several districts ought to have a right of voting at the election of a representative, except such as are in so mean a situation as to be deemed to have no will of their own. One great fault there was in most of the ancient republics, that the people had a right to active resolutions, such as require some execution, a thing of which they are absolutely incapable. They ought to have no share in the government but for the choosing of representatives which is within their reach. For though few can tell the exact degree of men's capacities, yet there are none but are capable of knowing in general whether the person they choose is better qualified than most of his neighbours. Neither ought the representative body be chosen for the executive part of government, for which it is not so fit, but for enacting of laws, or to see whether the laws in being are duly executed, a thing suited to their abilities, and which none indeed but themselves can properly perform. In such a state there are always persons distinguished by their birth, riches, or honours. But were they to be confounded with the common people, and to have only the weight of a single vote like the rest, the common liberty would be their slavery, and they would have no interest in supporting it, as most of the popular resolutions would be against them. The share they have, therefore, in the legislature ought to be proportioned to their other advantages in the state, which happens only when they form a body that has a right to check the licentiousness of the people, as the people have a right to oppose any encroachment of theirs. The legislative power is therefore committed to the body of the nobles, and to that which represents the people, each having their assemblies and deliberations apart, each their separate views and interests. Of the three powers above mentioned, the judiciary is in some measure next to nothing. There remain, therefore, only two. And as these have need of a regulating power to moderate them, the part of the legislative body composed of the nobility is extremely proper for this purpose. The body of the nobility ought to be hereditary. In the first place, it is so in its own nature. And in the next, there must be a considerable interest to preserve its privileges. Privileges that in themselves are obnoxious to popular envy, and of course in a free state, are always in danger. But as a hereditary power might be tempted to pursue its own particular interests, and forget those of the people, it is proper that where a singular advantage may be gained by corrupting the nobility, as in laws relating to the supplies, they should have no other share in the legislation than the power of rejecting, and not that of resolving. By the power of resolving, I mean the right of ordaining by their own authority, or of amending what has been ordained by others. By the power of rejecting, I would be understood to mean the right of annulling a resolution taken by another, which was the power of the tribunes at Rome. And though the person possessed of the privilege of rejecting may likewise have the right of approving, yet this approbation passes for no more than a declaration, that he intends to make no use of his privilege of rejecting, and is derived from that very privilege. The executive power ought to be in the hands of a monarch, because this branch of government, having need of dispatch, is better administered by one than by many. On the other hand, whatever depends on the legislative power is oftentimes better regulated 
by many than by a single person. But if there were no monarch, and the executive power should be committed to a certain number of persons, selected from the legislative body, there would be an end then of liberty, by reason that the two powers would be united, as the same persons would sometimes possess, and would be always able to possess, a share in both. Were the legislative body to be a considerable time without meeting, this would likewise put an end to liberty. For of two things one would naturally follow. Either that there would be no longer any legislative resolutions, and then the state would fall into anarchy, or that these resolutions would be taken by the executive power, which would render it absolute. It would be needless for the legislative body to continue always assembled. This would be troublesome to the representatives, and, moreover, would cut out too much work for the executive power, so as to take off its attention to its office, and oblige it to think only of defending its own prerogatives, and the right it has to execute. Again, were the legislative body to be always assembled, it might happen to be kept up only by filling the places of the deceased members with new representatives, and in that case, if the legislative body were once corrupted, the evil would be past all remedy. When different legislative bodies succeed one another, the people who have a bad opinion of that which is actually sitting may reasonably entertain some hopes of the next. But were it to be always the same body, the people upon seeing it once corrupted would no longer expect any good from its laws, and of course they would either become desperate or fall into a state of indolence. The legislative body should not meet of itself, for a body is supposed to have no will but when it is met, and besides, were it not to meet unanimously, it would be impossible to determine which was really the legislative body, the part assembled, or the other. And if it had a right to prorogue itself, it might happen never to be prorogued, which would be extremely dangerous, in case it should ever attempt to encroach on the executive power. Besides, there are seasons, some more proper than others, for assembling the legislative body. It is fit, therefore, that the executive power should regulate the timing of meeting, as well as the duration of those assemblies, according to the circumstances and exigencies of a state known to itself. Were the executive power not to have a right of restraining the encroachments of the legislative body, the latter would become despotic. For, as it might arrogate to itself what authority it pleased, it would soon destroy all the other powers. But it is not proper, on the other hand, that the legislative power should have a right to stay the executive. For as the execution has its natural limits, it is useless to confine it. Besides, the executive power is generally employed in momentary operations. The power, therefore, of the Roman tribunes was faulty, as it put a stop not only to the legislation, but likewise to the executive part of government, which was attended with infinite mischief. But if the legislative power in a free state has no right to stay the executive, it has a right, and ought to have the means, of examining in what manner its laws have been executed, an advantage which this government has over that of Crete and Sparta, 
where the Cosmi and the Euphori gave no account of their administration. But whatever may be the issue of that examination, the legislative body ought not to have a power of arraigning the person, nor of course the conduct, of him who is entrusted with the executive power. His person should be sacred, because as it is necessary for the good of the state to prevent the legislative body from rendering themselves arbitrary, the moment he is accused or tried, there is an end of liberty. In this case, the state would be no longer a monarchy, but a kind of republic, though not a free government. But as the person entrusted with the executive power cannot abuse it without bad counsellors, and such as have the laws as ministers, though the laws protect them as subjects, these men may be examined and punished, and an advantage which this government has over that of Nidus, where the law allowed of no such thing as calling their emimones to an account, even after their administration, and therefore the people could never obtain any satisfaction for the injuries done them. Though, in general, the judiciary power ought not to be united with any part of the legislative, yet this is liable to three exceptions, founded on the particular interest of the party accused. The great are always obnoxious to popular envy, and were they to be judged by the people, they might be in danger from their judges, and would, moreover, be deprived of the privilege which the meanest subject is possessed of in a free state, of being tried by his peers. The nobility, for this reason, ought not to be cited before the ordinary courts of judicature, but before that part of the legislature which is composed of their own body. It is possible that the law, which is clear-sighted in one sense, and blind in another, might, in some cases, be too severe. But as we have already observed, the national judges are no more than the mouth that pronounces the words of the law. Mere passive beings, incapable of moderating either its force or rigour. That part, therefore, of the legislative body, which we have just now observed to be a necessary tribunal on another occasion, also is a necessary tribunal in this. It belongs to its supreme authority to moderate the law in favour of the law itself by mitigating the sentence. It might also happen that a subject entrusted with the administration of public affairs may infringe the rights of the people, and be guilty of crimes which the ordinary magistrates either could not or would not punish. But, in general, the legislative power cannot try causes, and much less can it try this particular case where it represents the party aggrieved, which is the people. It can only, therefore, impeach. But before what court shall it bring its impeachment? Must it go and demean itself before the ordinary tribunals, which are its inferiors, and, being composed, moreover, of men who are chosen from the people as well as itself, will naturally be swayed by the authority of so powerful an accuser? No. In order to preserve the dignity of the people and the security of the subject, the legislative part which represents the people must bring in its charge before the legislative part which represents the nobility, who have neither the same interests nor the same passions. 
Here is an advantage which this government has over most of the ancient republics, where this abuse prevailed, that the people were at the same time both judge and accuser. The executive power, pursuant of what has been already said, ought to have a share in the legislature by the power of rejecting. Otherwise, it would soon be stripped of its prerogative. But should the legislative power usurp a share of the executive, the latter would be equally undone. If the prince were to have a part in the legislature by the power of resolving, liberty would be lost. But as it is necessary he should have a share in the legislature for the support of his own prerogative, this share must consist in the power of rejecting. The change of government at Rome was owing to this, that neither the Senate, who had one part of the executive power, nor the magistrates, who were entrusted with the other, had the right of rejecting, which was entirely lodged in the people. Here, then, is the fundamental constitution of the government we are treating of. The legislative body being composed of two parts, they check one another by the mutual privilege of rejecting. They are both restrained by the executive power, as the executive is by the legislative. These three powers should naturally form a state of repose or an action. But as there is a necessity for movement in the course of human affairs, they are forced to move, but still in concert. As the executive power has no other part in the legislative than the privilege of rejecting, it can have no share in the public debates. It is not even necessary that it should propose, because as it may always disapprove of the resolutions that shall be taken, it may likewise reject the decisions on those proposals which were made against its will. In some ancient commonwealths, where public debates were carried on by the people in a body, it was natural for the executive power to propose and debate in conjunction with the people, otherwise their resolutions must have been attended with a strange confusion. Were the executive power to determine the raising of public money, otherwise than by giving its consent, liberty would be at an end, because it would become legislative in the most important point of legislation. If the legislative power was to settle the subsidies, not from year to year, but forever, it would run the risk of losing its liberty, because the executive power would be no longer dependent, and when once it was possessed of such a perpetual right, it would be a matter of indifference whether it held it of itself or of another. The same may be said if it should come to a resolution of entrusting not an annual, but a perpetual command of the fleets and armies to the executive power. To prevent the executive power from being able to oppress, it is a requisite that the armies with which it is entrusted should consist of the people, and have the same spirit as the people, as was the case at Rome till the time of Marius. To obtain this end, there are only two ways, either that the person employed in the army should have sufficient property to answer for their conduct to their fellow subjects, and be enlisted only for a year, as was customary at Rome, or if there should be a standing army, composed chiefly of the most despicable part of the nation, the legislative power should have a right to disband them as soon as it pleased. The soldiers should live in common with the rest of the people, and no separate camp, barracks, or fortress should be suffered. 
when once an army is established it ought not to depend immediately on the legislative but on the executive power and this from the very nature of the thing its business consisting more in action than in deliberation it is natural for mankind to set a higher value upon courage than timidity on activity than prudence on strength than counsel hence the army will ever despise a senate and respect their own officers they will naturally slight the orders sent them by a body of men whom they look upon as cowards and therefore unworthy to command them so that as soon as the troops depend entirely on the legislative body it becomes a military government and if the contrary has ever happened it has been owing to some extraordinary circumstances it is because the army was always kept divided it is because it was composed of several bodies that depended each on a particular province it is because the capital towns were strong places defended by their natural situation and not garrisoned with regular troops holland for instance is still safer than venice she might drown or starve the revolted troops for as they are not quartered in towns capable of furnishing them with necessary subsistence this subsistence is of course precarious in perusing the admirable treatise of tacitus on the manners of the germans we find it is from that nation the english have borrowed the idea of their political government this beautiful system was invented first in the woods as all human things have an end the state we are speaking of will lose its liberty will perish have not rome sparta and carthage perished it will perish when the legislative power shall be more corrupt than the executive it is not my business to examine whether the english actually enjoy this liberty or not sufficient it is for my purpose to observe that it is established by their laws and i inquire no further neither do i pretend by this to undervalue other governments nor to say that this extreme political liberty ought to give uneasiness to those who have only a moderate share of it how should i have any such design i who think that even the highest refinement of reason is not always desirable and that mankind generally find their account better in mediums than in extremes harrington in his oceana has also inquired into the utmost degree of liberty to which the constitution of a state may be carried but of him indeed it may be said that for want of knowing the nature of real liberty he busied himself in pursuit of an imaginary one and that he built a chalcedon though he had a byzantinium before his eyes chapter seven of the monarchies we are acquainted with the monarchies we are acquainted with have not like that we have been speaking of liberty for their direct view the only aim is the glory of the subject of the state and of the sovereign but hence there results a spirit of liberty which in those states is capable of achieving as great things and of contributing as much perhaps to happiness as liberty itself here the three powers are not distributed and founded on the model of the constitution above mentioned 
they have each a particular distribution according to which they border more or less on political liberty and if they did not border upon it monarchy would degenerate into despotic government chapter eight why the ancients had not a clear idea of monarchy the ancients had no notion of a government founded on a body of nobles and much less on a legislative body composed of the representatives of the people the republics of greece and italy were cities that had each their own form of government and convened their subjects within their walls before rome had swallowed up all the other republics there was scarcely anywhere a king to be found no not in italy gaul spain or germany they were all petty states or republics even africa itself was subject to a great commonwealth and asia minor was occupied by greek colonies there was therefore no instance of deputies of towns or assemblies of the states one must have gone as far as persia to find a monarchy i am not ignorant that there were confederate republics in which several towns sent deputies to an assembly but i affirm there was no monarchy on that model the first plan therefore of the monarchies we are acquainted with was thus formed the german nations that conquered the roman empire were certainly a free people of this we may be convinced only by reading tacitus on the manners of the germans the conquerors spread themselves over all the country living mostly in the fields and very little in towns when they were in germany the whole nation was able to assemble this they could no longer do when dispersed through the conquered provinces and yet as it was necessary that the nation should deliberate on public affairs pursuant to their usual method before the conquest they had recourse to representatives such is the origin of the gothic government amongst us at first it was mixed with aristocracy and monarchy a mixture attended with this inconvenience that the common people were bondmen the custom afterwards succeeded of granting letters of enfranchisement and was soon followed by so perfect a harmony between the civil liberty of the people the privileges of the nobility and clergy and the prince's prerogative that i really think there never was in the world a government so well tempered as that of each part of europe so long as it lasted surprising that the corruption of the government of a conquering nation should have given birth to the best species of constitution that could possibly be imagined by man chapter nine aristotle's manner of thinking aristotle is greatly puzzled in treating of monarchy he makes five species and he does not distinguish them by the form of constitution but by things merely accidental as the virtues and vices of the prince or by things extrinsic such as tyranny usurped or inherited among the number of monarchies he ranks the persian empire and the kingdom of sparta but is it not evident that one was a despotic state and the other a republic the ancients who were strangers to the distribution of the three powers in government of a single person 
could never form a just idea of monarchy. End of chapter 9 out of 20 chapters in book 11. Book 11 continues on the next track.